When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. My guest today is Emily Bingham. We'll be talking about her new book, My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song, published by Knopf in 2022. In this book, telling the story of the reception of My Old Kentucky Home, composed in 1853 by Stephen Foster, becomes a way to meditate on how white Americans have constructed a story of the United States that washes away racism and silences the pain of enslavement and racialized violence, replacing it with a nostalgia for an America that never was. Bingham traces the journey of my old Kentucky home from a popular minstrel song written by an alcoholic northerner to Lost Cause Anthem to American patriotic hymn to a symbol of a reckoning over United States history that is still unfinished. By showing how the song has been continually recontextualized, Bingham also demonstrates how myths are made, then accepted as truth, and the lengths that some people will go to in order to maintain an inauthentic history that conforms to a comforting national and even personal self-image. At the same time, she also shows readers how Black Americans' responses to my old Kentucky home illuminates the challenges and contradictions of living within while also protesting a racist system. Thank you so much for joining me, Emily. Thank you, Kristen. It's great to be with you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to have you here. Um, how did you come to this topic to write a book on just one song? Right. Well, I am from Kentucky, so I think it started there. I was away for my PhD and, you know, got that actually in North Carolina like you. Um, but I came home to my uh, hometown of Louisville. And as a young person, I was just kind of an adult. I was really absorbing the culture here, including, of course, uh, the Kentucky Derby, which happens just down the road from my own house. And you know, I was starting to go to the Derby as a grown-up and even take guests. And there came a, a year when I had some friends visiting in town. And as the resident historian, I thought it was my, you know, up to me to 
brief them on the rituals and traditions that they were going to experience, uh, hats and juleps and so forth. And then the song, and I just, you know, I had never really known myself what the heck this song was and it was old. That's all I really knew about Kentucky. So looking it up, I experienced a certain shock um, when I read through the original lyrics. And this is back in the 90s sometime, um, a very different time from ours. And I just realized that this really was a song about slavery. And it was, I, I just, once I had to face that, I just went and whenever it came around again every year, which it does like the blooms of spring um, here in, in the bluegrass state, I was confronted again, like, what do I think about this? How does it make me cry, but also make me feel extremely, un like, increasingly uncomfortable. So, um, so that there's that connection you had growing up in Kentucky and, and sort of, as you said, being confronted with it every year. But of course, there's many um, foster songs uh, that have um, a long history. Do you think that My Old Kentucky Home is unique in some way? Or could you have written a similar book about old folks at home or, or Camptown races or something like that, do you think? Or is there something special about My Old Kentucky Home? Mm -hmm. I would argue, this is, you're, you're the first person to ask me that question, Kristen. That's great. Um, I actually would argue that it is unique. Um, in the sense of, not in the sense of in his works, because there are a number of songs that you mentioned that have lots of similarities, but um, in the way it has remained and remains extremely embedded in current uh, culture, current use. So I just don't think there's any Foster song that is, you know, sung at sporting events by tens and you know sometimes hundred thousand people football games basketball games at uh state colleges universities um you know legislative and uh funeral services for people who have taken this song into their hearts it's been passed down to them with love uh other foster songs like old folks at home some of your listeners may know was a uh, huge hit as well as this one and it was made the state song of florida and yet, I don't think the Florida, you know, professional sports teams or even college teams are uh, are are playing that with their um, their marching bands. It's just it is it is very up to date still in in the culture of Kentucky. And then because of the Kentucky Derby being an internet, the most important sporting event of its of of you know racing in the world, it gets this international play, uh, which no other Foster song, I don't think, gets today. So why don't we start with um, just saying or, or telling the listeners the sort of basic facts about the song so that we have sort of a, a baseline of knowledge for everyone to work with. Sort of, can you tell us a bit about Stephen Foster and how he came to write the song as well as kind of the cultural milieu in which he was, uh, in which he was writing that song and, and how it was used at its, uh, at its beginnings, I guess. Right. Well, the big 
to me, the big headline, and I, you know, many uh, people familiar with Foster will not be surprised, but it is a big headline for a lot of readers and general public that Foster was not from Kentucky, not even from the South. And so just taking into account fully that this is a man who grew up in an industrializing Western city, Pittsburgh town, um, he was from the middle class, uh, striving middle class, not always succeeding. Um, his father had a real up and down career and debt and bankruptcy and so forth. Um, and that he was also operating in a time when there was no thing, such thing as a professional songwriter. So, you know, giving Stephen Foster his due, he was not a conformist. He wasn't going into business like the rest of his uh, brothers and what as he was expected to do um, and he was he he was committed to being an artist and yet that was a completely unacceptable socially decision you know decision for him to make at the time so I think that context is helpful um, the other context that I think is absolutely crucial is that the only music business that was a paying uh, that could pay him for his work as a popular composer or songwriter was blackface minstrelsy. And he grew up absolutely steeped in it because being born in the 1820s and coming of age in the 1830s and for early 40s, that's what was the most popular form of entertainment in the country. And it was you know, I say in the book, you know, again, this is news to a lot of people who aren't steeped in music, American music history. I mean, that it was bigger than anything we created until jazz, right? Or Hollywood, um, in, in terms of a international uh, export as well, culturally. So he, that was what he was, he knew it, he was used to it. He started writing songs in that genre as a teenager, or early 20s. Um, and and he met with some success. I think he was himself, everyone was sort of surprised, but it happened for him. And he was able to get contracts with um, music publishers in bigger cities than his own. There weren't any really in Pittsburgh. Um, and the idea for him was to sell sheet music. It was the only way he would get a few pennies off each sheet was sold. So I write a lot about the constraints that he operated under um, creatively, because even though he wrote hundreds of songs, most of which have never been listened to by anyone except the most, uh, you know, inveterate Foster follower or, or, or scholar, uh, the only ones that burbled up with a very few exceptions, the ones that became successful for him and that paid him anything were ones that were in the blackface minstrel genre and that were taken around, as one uh, commentator said, by the songbirds of the era <laughs> to every little town and railroad stop where uh, blackface minstrels and then later Negro minstrels would perform them. So, you know, he, he would have liked to have had success with uh, where lies the fairy dreaming, or I'm a little bit making that up, but that's close to something that he titled a song. But it was not what succeeded, is what not what the market rewarded. 
So um, one of the things that I really appreciate about your appreciate about your book is that you always make sure to explain that. Um, just as um, a, the song continued to be popular, and actually I think in some ways you could argue becomes even more and more popular even as minstrelsy starts to die away, um, uh, you always uh, make sure that we understand there's always been resistance to the song, no matter how popular it becomes. And um, just to sort of start at the beginning of that, um, Frederick Douglass uh hated minstrelsy, but on the other hand, understood he might be able to use my old Kentucky home for him, for his own purposes as an abolitionist. And I think it sets up really well right from the start the difficulties that Black people had in what to do with this particular song, but also sort of with a lot of this kind of white supremacist culture that they were encountering, which was sort of at what point do you use it for your own own um, purposes, and at what point do you abandon it or try to uh, force it out of the culture entirely? And I think Frederick Douglass is an example of right from the start in the 1850s, that's the big, that dynamic begins around that song. Can you give us some other examples besides Douglass of how there's this push and pull always between um, uh whether to try to abolish the song or whether to try to live with it in some way and, and make it useful for, uh, for a larger project of resistance or social justice in some cases. Right. Um, absolutely. And I, I think we should also just um, review that the song is not just about slavery, it is about the slave trade. So it, it is in, you know, it, because it's a blackface minstrel song, it's written by a white man in the 1850s. It's uh, sung by white men pretending to be black on stages for white audiences. But the character at the center of the song is a black man um, who is being enslaved in Kentucky and is being torn from that home, right? Um, and he's mourning this loss of that that place because like real black people, many hundreds of thousands uh, were sold in the internal slave trade of the 1850s down river, right? Which is literally a phrase that comes from the Kentucky internal slave trade to the deep south where there was a market for them that was uh, gave enriched uh, Kentuckians who didn't have as much need for the, this kind of labor at that time. And the song uses the, what I call the D word um, multiple times. Um, and it also has this sort of fatalistic ending where uh, the person is in question is, is dying in the sugarcane fields or going to die with never to see this Kentucky home and family again. Um, and, and it is a beautiful song. I mean, the melody is, is very, uh, yearning, right. But, um, but yes, it was also, um, could be played in a sort of comic way or a very sentimental, serious way. And in either case, uh, the question, you know, for a, a Frederick Douglass was, is this making fun of us? Is this um, objectifying or is this actually maybe going to help the cause of anti-slavery and abolition? And you would 
it's understandable that a song that you know talks about someone being ripped from their family um, to die alone um, and uh, and wrecked um, by labor would maybe Douglas might think that would be helpful. Unfortunately, the way it is larded with sentiment and sort of wistfulness for that Kentucky uh, home, let's say, you know, plantation, um, takes a lot of that edge off. And, uh, and, And so much so that someone like Joshua Simpson, who was writing abolitionist songs and poems and set them to popular music. He was writing in the 1850s in Ohio, um, went to Oberlin. So he had to write whole new lyrics for this song because no abolitionist wished them, wished any enslaved person sold downriver back into slavery in Kentucky. So Joshua Simpson had to rewrite the whole thing so that it was not about going back or wishing yourself back there. Um, so that's that's one uh, response. Another would be um, to think about how a song like this becomes part of the repertoire for Black performers in the 1870s. So there are some really fantastic people who are getting an opportunity for the first time to be on stage for uh, American audiences. And so, for instance, the Hires sisters, um, California-born Black sisters who have incredible vocal abilities, they get up a show. um, They're really aiming for classical repertoire, but became clear that they might do better with uh, a more popular repertoire. So they have a play called Out of Bondage that folds my old Kentucky home into a storyline that also includes musical, uh, I mean, it's really a musical, um, like uh, spirituals and also, um, uh, you know, operatic um, numbers. So, So it was there sort of to, I think, maybe assuage audiences. It was something familiar. Or, you know, maybe they thought it was just a great song for them. And maybe they did see some positive, but it certainly helped fill out the, the, the music for that particular successful production. Very rare, all black cast at the time, first time like that. Um, and then you go on further into um, the big shows. Um, well, you, you also have the uh, Fisk singers, you know, and so mixing a song like My Old Kentucky Home in with spirituals on these incredible, you know, fundraising uh, tours of all black singers. And I, I, you know, I think that for so many, Foster's songs become literally interwoven with and confused, for so many white Americans, confused with uh much more authentically black music coming out of the spiritual tradition. And uh, so that's just in the 1870s. Um, And those kind of, uh, I mean, it was a command performance kind of piece, right, Kristen? Like any black band in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, or minstrel act was, was required, according to my research, to perform these songs. And so 
yes, there was resistance. Um, and I come up with some good examples of that, a, a band in New York City that just pretended they didn't know the lyrics of my old Kentucky or bungled them so badly that the 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 person who'd hired them, you know, had to write something to the newspaper to say, I'm never going to hire these people again. <laughs> but it it really took until the 20th century for Black artists to have the sort of platform stable enough to literally protest it or sing it without its um, slurs intact, at least. And then even later to call for eliminating, and I'm talking about Paul Robeson and Marian Anderson at that point. Um, I feel like sort of this history that you draw of my old Kentucky home, one way to uh, view it um, is very much sort of using it as an example of the growth of the lost cause myth, right? So, um, this myth about the Civil War and about what the Old South really was like and that enslaved people were happy, all of these myths that develop after the Civil War in the South and really become the narrative that Americans, white Americans, believe about the United States and particularly about the South. Um, and my old Kentucky home, just like the way that it is um, interpreted by white Americans, really changes as the lost cause um, uh, gains more and more of, of a foothold. And one of the things that I loved about this book is that you really can dig in using my old Kentucky home as a way into it, how those myths were created and literally the amount of lying that had to happen in order to create that myth. And then once that myth was there, how hard it is to dislodge. And I thought one of the best examples of that was this uh, story of Federal Hill, which is um, a, a national park site now, um, or I guess it's a national park site. So that, yes, that's correct. And State, uh, state park. State park, yeah. excuse me. And I would love for you to tell, tell us more about Federal Hill and sort of the, I mean, it it was just a crazy story, and it can be so hard sometimes to really be able to document very clearly exactly how a myth starts and why, and how entrenched it become can become so quickly, and how people can use uh, sort of set dressings like my old Kentucky home in order to make a myth really feel like truth. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this was a, a big part of me figuring out the sort of uh, the 20th century version, I would say, of this old, by already by that time, old song, old chestnut, right? Why did it persist into the 20th century as much as it did, just as you said at the beginning, as minstrelsy, you know, began to fall away and be taken over by vaudeville and Hollywood and so forth? So, um so yes, uh, where to start? Kentuckians did not particularly cotton to this song until the 19 teens and 20s. And, but what was, at least they didn't consciously embrace it, but come the 19 teens and 20s, there was a conscious movement among leaders, male white leaders, politicians, business people, to because they had seen a movement to embrace and, and use this as a brand for the state. 
because they had already for a couple, for at least 10 or 15 years, starting about the turn of the century, seen how national, again, this is not a Kentucky story. This is a national story that then Kentucky brings in and uh, sort of decorates in this a very elaborate fashion. And so the process is that, you know, with World's Fairs and um, various like national kind of events, my old Kentucky home and some and other things like Dixie as well become these national sort of hymns. And Kentucky leaders, both Republican and Democrat, so both sides of the political aisle, so those who are supposedly more, you know, liberal or supposedly uh, with regard to race, that would be Republicans. And those who are maybe less, those would be Democrats, um, seem to agree that even though this was not a anti-slavery song or a pro-slavery song. It was just kind of this popular song that was a little, you know, in the past, that it would it could do some real work for them. Kentucky had an image problem. It was associated with feuding and poverty and Appalachian, you know, uh, you know, inbreeding. Um, it was also associated with horses and some natural beauty and pioneers like like uh, Daniel Boone, right? But this turned out to be more, it, it resonated, let us say, with people more than anything. And so at the World's Fair in 1904, uh, the Kentucky building had a player piano that had something like 17 versions in the, in the main room, in the foyer of my old Kentucky home that played thousands and thousands of times all day month after month after month and people loved it and it becomes this slogan the old kentucky home or the new kentucky home or whatever you call it it's the kentucky home and so in the 20s there is a um, public movement uh, a commission started by the governor to i to purchase a property that had a claim that is is totally inauthentic that Stephen Foster wrote the song there and that this would be a way to quote honor Foster and uh, a great American artist because by then he was beginning to be seen as this having a revival um, and also, you know, bring tourists literally to stop in their new cars on their new trips around the country uh, to a small town not too far from Louisville called Bardstown. So this uh, place gets bought at a premium it gets opened in 1923. It will be a hundred years uh, next year since that park has, well, now a state park. It was initially a, a private, but it quickly went into the state's uh, purview. And for a hundred years, people went there and were told this is the place where the sacred song was 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 dreamt up, and it inspired it. And again, it focusing on that first verse where the description is of a bucolic place where the D words are, are gay and the corn top is ripe and the meadow is blooming and the birds are singing. It's a very lovely set. And then hard times come, which are very vaguely referred to. And then you have this soaring chorus and then people don't really, I mean, in the twenties, they looked at the rest because they had no problem with, you know, possums and coons and people dying in the cane fields, really. Um, but, you know, it, it, it set up this pretty 
and 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 delightful way of presenting Kentucky as genteel, uh, and it played into this already well developed lost cause myth. And I right, but it's a, a, extremely ironic that a state that did not join the Confederacy, that was bitterly divided, that sent more black soldiers into the um, the Union Army than any state outside of Mississippi, um, ends up founding what I would say is plantation tourism with my old Kentucky home. It wasn't, so 1923 was really early on that trajectory of what we are still living with of, you know, people flocking to places that feel romantic and exciting with these, you know, big houses and um, gracious living for the white folks. When in fact, the only home mentioned in the song is a slave cabin. Yeah, I I think that it really shows how um, how the South won the war in the end, right? That it won the war of minds in the end through the lost cause. And um, there's that book by Heather Richardson recently that came out uh, called you know how the South won the war, and it it is it's it goes through how the lost cause really over overtakes the history of that period, um, especially in places like Kentucky, which, you know, um, in 1860, they probably would have been appalled, many of the people who who, uh, who were so um, pro-union and all those black soldiers, I'm sure they uh, would have been uh, appalled had they seen what had happened if they, or, and I'm sure some of them lived to the point where they did see it. Um, so, you have uh, so that whole national park story was, or uh, state park story, was a surprise to me. I had no idea. I I had not heard of that. But there was one other surprise um, among many, I guess, that I'd love for talk about a little bit, and that is the role that J.K. Lilly played in sort of preserving Stephen Foster's memory and continuing to. Um, uh, perpetuate uh, myths about him as well. He was the son of Eli Lilly, um, who founded this huge pharmaceutical company. And I wondered as I was reading this story of this incredibly wealthy man who um, uh, becomes involved with Stephen Foster um, in the 20th century, if you think that that his involvement is another reason that old my old Kentucky home continue, you know, continued to be so relevant? Or do you think at that point, um, the song and the person was more diverse, divorced from each other, and it really wouldn't have mattered? So I mean, also, let tell us about Lily, but also, I'm interested to hear what you think his role was in perpetuating this myth about, mm -hmm. um, or, the, or the popularity of this song. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I definitely think it had an impact. <laughs> Um, and I was also surprised at the the, the um, level of his philanthropic interest in Stephen Foster, and then within that, the role that my old Kentucky home played. So Lily was retiring from uh, being the you know CEO or whatever the president of of Jake of of Eli Lilly Company, and at that point in the '30s, the company was very successful. They, they were very wealthy family that controlled the company. So um, he was looking, literally looking for a hobby to help, you know, to help ease the transition out of being a full on businessman. And he had memories of being a child in the, you know, 1860s and hearing 
the the song uh, sung serenaded in small town Indiana under the windows of the house his grandparents' house where his aunts were being you know sort of courted by local college boys. So that was a it, it literally brought back time of loneliness. He was as he lost his mother and anyway the song Foster and his music played this uh, this role in his childhood that he sort of all came flooding back to him when he listened, put a, a record on the gramophone and told his kid, his assembled kids at a holiday gathering about what he felt. And so, yeah, he literally becomes a the most just focused collector. He, he hires a recent Harvard graduate to help him. Um, he goes out and buys every Foster-related sheet music, manuscript, everything, anything he can find, letter, scrap. Um, he gets from the Foster descendants a very important item, this uh, sketchbook, which was one of the few things that they saved from Stephen Foster. Stephen Foster wrote a lot of letters, but it was uh, deliberate. they were deliberately destroyed because of the way he shamed the family with his alcoholism and separating from his wife and, you know, living in poverty in the end. Um, so, uh, so this was, this sketchbook had his, you know, early drafts of his music. It had, you know, listed his, um, the, the amount of money that each song made. It, it was really remarkable information for any historian. So he, he gets that, he pays a very light, high price for it. And then he ultimately realizes that he wants to pass this collection to his to Foster's hometown. Lily's in Indiana, Foster grew up in Pittsburgh. And he uh, has also commissioned a biography of Foster by a very respected music, his, uh, music historian or music uh, author named John Tasker Howard. It's by, at that time by far the most comprehensive biography and that biography in itself in getting reviewed and turned into radio plays and things like that has a large impact culturally. A lot of people in the 19, late 1930s when it came out had no idea. I mean, even culture, very culturally aware people that Stephen Foster wrote both Camp Town Races and My Old Kentucky Home and Oh Susanna. They just, it, it, he as an individual had not had not really come together um, as the icon that Lily, I think, absolutely made him. So it goes on and on. The program, he spends just hundreds of thousands of dollars um, on this. And uh, in the end, he hands the whole collection over to the University of Pittsburgh, staffs it, endows it. And one of the big things that I've call out as I think probably one of the most influential parts of the program Lily implemented was songbooks. So he not only gave this sort of academic gloss on Foster by, by, you know, helping document his career and, you know, funding a biography, but he also, and putting it all at a university, right? You know, it's canonization number, you know, a 101. But he also, um, had a program to get Foster's music into American schools directly. And there were hundreds of thousands of books sent booklets sent out for free to school teachers, music teachers all over the country. Um, The 
archive has letters back from these school teachers uh, thanking Mr. Lilly for the free books and from school children themselves, there were prizes. I mean, it just was a brilliant program. And the first song in that book was My Old Kentucky Home. Millions of kids learned foster songs who might not have, um, and we're talking through the 30s, 40s, 50s, at least. So a whole nother generation. Yeah, yeah, well, and I think that sort of bringing it into the schools, as you say, um, and, and there were some other songbooks that included My Old Kentucky Home as part of sort of American songbooks that were used in schools and also in sing-alongs. Um, Esther Morgan Ellis um, has started to work on these. She works on sing-alongs and has found My Old Kentucky Home and other songs like that in in those books too. And I know I grew up in North Carolina and I am sure that I learned my old Kentucky home in elementary school. And I think the other thing that's interesting about this is while Lily um, gets Foster, Stephen Foster as a person in front of the nation, I think some of the songs that he writes, because they're in all of these sort of um, huge public venues like public schools and sing-along movements and stuff, after a while people think they're folk songs. They don't know that anybody has written them at all, which gives them, I think, another way that they become national songs of nostalgia because they're not written by anyone, right? They're just folk songs, I think, after a while. So it's interesting that his role in bringing up Stephen Foster in some ways, I think, in the end might have erased him as well as the songs became so popular. Such a tension. I mean, there's a famous book, The Fireside Book of Folk, Folk Songs, I believe, um, which, you know, does credit Foster when they print his songs in it. But it definitely, I, I don't really, I would love someone to write the book, and maybe they have, you can tell me, on how the folk song movement took things that weren't, you know, like I, I, what is the definition of folk song? What were they thinking um, and, you know, I think this idea of a national folk, right, is, is, is not really even necessarily an American idea. It's a, a different idea, but one that maybe Americans were trying to. Uh, but Foster becomes an accessory to that. And so and uh, his minstrel music and a lot of other minstrel songs become folkified. Um, and there all, and also there's been a bit written about this um, that's, I think, really interesting. They become infantilized. So they're taught to children. Somehow they're good for children. And that's, again, a way that minstrelsy and these race, racial tropes that they include that are very stereotypical, right, and harmful to Black children. I mean, Black parents started opposing this pretty quickly, um, you know, get just completely mainstreamed and unquestioned. Um, So you have referred to the uh, D word several times. um, And I did want to talk about this and and bringing it up in the context of black parents, especially. Um, We have a lot of international listeners of this podcast, and they may not be familiar with that word. So I'm going to say it once just for just so that because I think some people who don't know our history might not um, know that darkies is the word that you're referring to, which is um, in the first verse, the most obvious way that it becomes apparent that this is talking about an enslaved person or a person of color as opposed to just sort of 
anybody, you know, someone who is missing their home, and particularly the Kentucky home. And um, there is a long history of Black um, people, parents for school children and other people trying to get that word changed in sort of official documentation. Um, and whether that's in, you know, songbooks or when my old Kentucky home becomes the Kentucky state anthem, worried about, you know, using that word. Um, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the resistance, the incredible resistance that black, uh, parents and other activists, um, encountered, not trying to get rid of the song at all, but just trying to change one word in the song. Yeah. Right. And you really are hitting on Kristen, just uh, to me as a author, my arc with this project, the, the, the painful awareness of the extremely, the, the massive resistance at this cultural level to listening to black people. Right. And even the smallest request uh, that seems to us pretty small and pretty simple uh, was in almost every case just dismissed as preposterous. And even by, and this is where I think this is very powerful, by liberal people like for their time who were progressive on race issues for their time. So a great example of that is in the 1940s in Washington, D.C. And there were parents long before that that did protest and other places. But I love this example. Uh, a member of the Board of Education in Washington, a Black member of the Board of Education, had been hearing from students and teachers that this song was really upsetting. And it was in a, an official textbook for the district. So um, she brought this to the attention of the board. The superintendent was, I, I believe, on her uh, side on this and had also heard these. But the majority of the board was just kind of appalled and very concerned at erasing something you know, beautiful and precious to the American people. And of all, I mean, it became a national story for a day or two, of all the friends of Black America to come to the rescue of Stephen Foster, who comes with a comment, um, but Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt, who was ahead of like 99.9% .9 of us, us white folks, um, uh, and, you know, who later probably reject, you know, would have regretted this, but she said, um, she said, oh, you know, black people are just, you know, they're very sensitive or oversensitive when they're worried about their own um, abilities and their own status. And, you know, as they reach, uh, you know, higher and do better in the world, they won't be so sensitive to these things. And that's a wonderful song. And that would be just ridiculous. So I... I, I think that continues um, slowly, slowly in the 50s and 60s in some places, but very piecemeal. So in, for instance, in Louisville, Kentucky, I have an example of uh, someone going to school, a white man who was a child then going to school, who was taught to say people instead of the D word, which fascinatingly just, you know, takes it, it, it you know, listened to the objection but it also, as you say, uh, takes away the explanation of what the song is about. 
right? But so, but and yet at the same time, in the 1980s, I have examples of people out in other parts of the state learning it in its original form, and you know, way, well into the 80s, even the 90s. So, and then it wasn't until the 1980s when uh, a group of Japanese students was visiting the K- Kentucky as tourists with a, a, a sort of exchange group they were with. And they visited the state capitol. After visiting my old Kentucky home state park, I will say, Stephen Foster is considered a monumental figure in uh, music in, in Japan um, for reasons that we could go into separately, but are fascinating. And they take the occasion to sing the song that they know already, um, My Old Kentucky Home, to the state legislature. And in the room that day was one black man who represented Kentucky, I mean, sorry, Louisville, the city of Louisville in, uh, in, to the state. And everyone was standing up because this is what people do with My Old Kentucky Home. They stand up like it's the national anthem take off their hats and so forth. And, and this man, Carl Hines, could not believe he was hearing about the D's uh, being gay in the fields um, in the 1980s. And so he sat down and that prompted an official um, sort of resolution eventually um, to remove those words as request, as had been requested for like, you know, decades and decades and decades from the state song. Um, and and so that is what happened. We were left with the people or the folks sometimes as a substitute, uh, sometimes the brothers. <laughs> um, and and I do think that is a fascinating period for this iconic uh, piece of American culture. So it has been sort of cleaned up, right? Um, as I say at one point in the book, the song is sort of whitewashes slavery in Kentucky to begin with. But once the um, lyrics are adapted to a modern era um, and are more respectful, slavery in Kentucky is ghosted entirely. Yeah, it's a incredible irony. I am sh- I am sure that I learned it in elementary school in the 1970s in North Carolina, and I'm sure that we did not use the D word because I had no idea that it was about enslavement. I only learned the first verse. Of course, we didn't learn the others. That would have provoked other questions, right? So we only learned the first verse. But it does, you know, in making it something that one can sing without using a racial slur, as you say, it also then um, completely erases the meaning of the song as being about enslaved people at all. And, um, you know, either way is is deeply problematic. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. And um, I was mentioning Esther Morgan Ellis, she hasn't published this, so there'd be no way you would know it, but she actually has found evidence in these sing-along sing- songbooks that there were um, caricatures of black people in those songbooks um, until the fifties. And then they changed them to white people and, and changed the words in the sixties um, and the seventies. And um, she attributes that to the civil rights movement and sort of more sensitivity about using that word at all. Um, and I feel like 
and when I saw that, I was like, well, no wonder I thought it was, <laughs> you know, I couldn't figure out why I was so con so convinced it was wh about white person until, but then she explained it. I'm sure that's probably what, what, what did it. I'm sure I must have seen that sort of, um, that picturing of white, poor white people, um, instead of, instead of a, a caricature of a black person. Um, so another sort of layer on top of all the amazing things that you found. And actually, since you did bring up the Japanese connection, yet another thing that I think was unexpected to me was how important Stephen Foster is in, Jap in Japan. It's really your main international example of how my old Kentucky home, um, which did travel around the world, um, both with black um, performers and blackface performers. But uh, you focus in on Japan. Can you tell us a little bit about that aspect of of the story yeah i mean and it <laughs> um like you you say it, it started in the minstrel era when japan was being opened gunboat diplomacy um and uh, minstrelsy was one of the ways that um europeans and americans well in this case americans were sort of uh, able to bridge the cultural, vast cultural divide with a kingdom that had been closed, right, to the outside world. And early, soon after that, some uh, Japanese uh, people studying in the United States went back to Japan and created a, a national um, curriculum. And that national curriculum included music and they used Stephen Foster songs, the melodies, um, to also to, with these new words that sometimes echoed what the songs were about, but sometimes didn't really. And these were taught in Japanese school. So all the melodies were known. And then I don't, you know, this was one of my great regrets in this project. I wanted to go to Japan <laughs> and really dig in um, and try to get more because I think there is a lot more to be said here. But somehow Foster himself, according to things I have read, documented academic things, in many schoolrooms was on the, you know, sort of wall with Beethoven as, you know, one of the great world composers, Western composers that children were taught about. And I do know that, you know, they were taught to sing uh, the songs in their, I think as English learning as well. So it was, not only was it these Japanese songs with the tunes, but then for English lessons. So when in the 1980s, Kentucky Fried Chicken was booming uh, in Japan, it was having, doing better, performing there better in its, than any other international location. They used my, the song in advertising. They celebrated 15 years of success by bringing little children over after an essay about Stephen Foster and my old Kentucky home essay contest to Kentucky to see everything. Um, and, and then they sent over a, uh, the, the, the Stephen Foster players. This, so in the 1950s, adding to the tourist attraction in Bardstown was a outdoor summer musical. Um, that uh, was the life, supposedly, of Stephen Foster with all of his songs interspersed. So those singers from the play went to Japan and toured the country 
one of them said we were like the Rolling Stones. Like literally everyone knew all the words. <laughs> wow. I mean, it, you know, I, it has always, I mean, it does make me laugh, I think, a little bit. Not laugh is the wrong word, but to, to hear how um, certain things in America have translated into other places in ways that we couldn't, I, I don't think we could imagine, such as Kentucky Fried Chicken becoming the dinner of choice on Christmas Day in 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 Japan, which is, you know, why they were bringing those uh, small children over to Japan to begin with as a, as a marketing thing. So, I mean, it's so interesting how, you know, all these currents sort of come together with capitalism and with, with the way that we export our culture and, you know, all of that. It's quite, quite confounding and amazing that you can find all of that in um, one song. I'm sorry, go ahead. I like to call it my old Kentucky I like to call it my old Kentucky home economics. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, well, as we come to the end of our time together, I wanted to ask one more question and sort of circle back from something you said at the very beginning of our talk. You said that um, you got interested because you had heard the song many times growing up and going to the Kentucky Derby and started doing research. And one of the things that I think is a little unusual in this book is that in almost every chapter, maybe every chapter, you include some kind of small anecdote about you or your family and how how you sort of identify in different ways or identifies maybe is the wrong word, but you have connections to this song. And I was wondering why you chose to, uh, to include that aspect um, of your own history with a song in such a, uh, in a way that runs through the whole book rather than what many authors do, which is to talk about it a little at the beginning or the end. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I mean, this was a tough choice. I'm trained like you um, in academia, and we are, you know, allowed occasionally to, you know, talk about, you know, our personal, you know, what draws us to something or why we do what we do. But this case, it just, um, it felt wrong to not show, again, the arc of, of, white engagement with this project of enshrining a song that in so many ways has, um, unfortunately and unknowingly to many of the white people who are doing it, has has perpetuated um, a story of, of terrible pain and tragedy in our history as something for white people to feel sentimental or uh, even just, you know, emote upon um, and, and, and enjoy and enjoy without at all reckoning with its, its roots in that, in that pain. And even when black people have raised their hands over and over and, or complained, um, how, how unwilling to hear we've been. And so I needed it just felt disingenuous not to be honest about my own um, part in that system and all of our parts in that system that we are given to play. And how could I know? I didn't know, but I also wanted my readers not to take this as some shaming or, or, or guilt. And this is something that indicates, I believe, how much there is out there that we don't know, that we um, 
I hope are just, you know, willing to be more open to owning what this past is. And so, for instance, my great great grandfather was, I learned and as an adult, was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, his son's first memory was of him seeing his father unhood himself at the door in the 1870s in North Carolina. That man, who was a child in the 1870s, wrote a letter to Margaret Mitchell, you know, emoting on uh, the terrible sufferings, um, you know, this lost cause myth of, of you know, his family um, during the Civil War. And in all these echoes, and then in my own life, you know, visiting plantation houses and frolicking around them like, you know, a park without um, really taking into account, whoa, this is actually the kind of place that my old Kentucky home uh, people who lived in Kentucky and were enslaved there were sent. And just not, it just, it, you know, it's okay. We're all on a, a path here. And I do think we, I don't want this to be about canceling. I think we need to reconsider. I want us to stay in that space. And I think the first person in this time um, is an invitation to be okay with being in this space of, 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 surprise, dismay, perhaps, um, and mainly just learning. Well, thank you for this. Um, I think it's uh, an excellent book, and there's way more in it than we could possibly get to in such a short time. But thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this book um, and to give, I hope, our listeners a sense of some of the issues that you address in it. Um, my name is Kristen Turner. This is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. And today I've been talking to Emily Bingham, author of My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song, published by Knopf in 2022. Thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure.